Mm. And I'll just give you a nice intro. Uh, No, not (laughs) (laughs) air. Hello and welcome to Antidote with Rain Lawrence. Today I'm speaking with Joe Dunn. Joe Dan is from Kindred Birth and is a founding member of the Kensal Birth Collective. She's been a doula for more than 10 years. Hi Joe, how are you? Hello Rain, how are you? Thank you so much for this opportunity. That's quite all right, you're very welcome. You're actually one of the pioneer, the six pioneer women that I'm speaking with um, to launch it and then I'll be using that time to get more under my belt. So yeah, thank you so much for helping me to start. What an honour to be considered a pioneer. <laughs> well, you are. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we'll get straight into it. So yeah. I had a little peruse around your Instagram in preparation for this interview. And you, I saw that you mentioned autonomous choice in your bio up there. Um, so could you speak a bit about what that is, what that means to you, what it looks like, and how if you've noticed um, the possibility for families making those autonomous choices mm-hmm. is that become more difficult in light of the pandemic has it changed over the recent years mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a multi-fold question to answer <laughs> so uh from my perspective i've been a doula i'd sort of trained in about 2000 my first train in 2009 uh the reason that i've kind of changed my perspective and wording on how i now um practice with with usage of the words autonomy is that uh, I saw that there was no autonomy in the birth space. So, you know, historically, I I supported m- the majority of the people I supported birthed in hospital. Um, mm-hmm. And I recognised uh, a couple of years ago that actually uh, there was a distinct lack of autonomy from the very first scan until women were largely pushing their babies out on their backs, having had all of their autonomy and all of their say essentially taken from them uh, every step of the way and not just taken from them every step of the way but their confidence constantly eroded um Mm. I, I you know I support women from you know lots of different professions in life and it didn't matter whether you were a lawyer um you were an academic whatever you are you can you can guarantee that by the time that you were coming to you know welcoming your baby into the world, your confidence will have been ultimately eroded by a system that doesn't place you as an authority in your birth. Yeah, that's making me laugh for the wrong reasons because it's like, oh wow, we've achieved equity. Like even yeah. you know, class women and upper class women and working class women, they're all getting the same care, but it's crap. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's why little chuckle there um yeah you mentioned scans is it is it still quite difficult for women in your experience to decline scans I've had the recent experience of um what was almost a wild pregnancy because I went to two appointments and found them to be really disrespectful and yeah like you say trying to uh, undermine my choices erode my confidence um so I declined scans uh, because I've read a little bit of evidence about how they can be harmful to cells and tissues um yeah so how, what what's the current landscape like with regards to declining elements of care particularly scans yeah all um maternity care and services are based around having scans exact exams and testing and you know from my perspective that is in lieu of actually having face-to-face Uh, person-centered consistency of care if you're Mm. there as a a midwife who should be seen as a uh, a professional an expert in pregnancy and birth if you're there working as a autonomous midwife then you will have that one-to-one connection with that person in front of you you get to know what their body looks like in pregnancy you know all the little nuances you know the niggles you know but in, in lieu of that, what we have is technocracy taking mm. over that one-to-one um, support and guidance. And so if you have, you know, a cons- consistent series of tests and scans, then the way that obstetrics thinks is that is a way of looking out for women. Actually, in my perspective, it's, it's quite the opposite because what I'm seeing now is, is that there's more propensity to scan at the very least thing, you know, um, we think you're a bit off the chart from the last time we saw you growth. Uh, 
we're going to get you to come in and check the growth. And then from that one little scan, you have a woman then questioning whether her baby's grown instead mm. of there and knowing that her, her, her fundal height is growing, checking in with her own body and maybe having another person that she can really rely on, a midwife, a wise elder person, a doula, a birth keeper, and, and being able to uh, really find that instinctive space. We've eroded that with, with scans, exams, and testing, and we continue to fast sort of um, steadily and stealthily continue down that route because it erodes that interpersonal contact. As I say, if you've got the kind of the graphs, the measurements and the scans, well, you're keeping everyone in check. That's not how yeah. bodies work. Yeah, and I think because the system's so understaffed and under-resourced and underfunded, it probably feels like, well, that's all we could all we can offer because it cuts, you know, labour-intensive, time-intensive work. But that is what women deserve and need, isn't it? In, in pregnancy, I always say to people, um, one of my greatest regrets is my grandma died when I was eighteen, and grandma had eleven kids. My dad was wow. eleven, you know. I <laughs> no tv um, my dad was the youngest of 11 born in 1950 so dad would have been the first three years of the inception of the nhs wow so the first one born at home and mm -hmm. born in a hospital sorry yes everyone mm -hmm. that preceded dad would have been born at home we're talking twins apparently well for sure twins on christmas day which i think my mum said that there was a couple of breaches in there out of 12 births, you're going to see a lot of variation, right? Aren't you? So, uh, yeah. sorry. So, yeah, it's a biggest regret of mine. And that woman was not going in for scans. You know, she had a trusted or a group of trusted midwives that would come to her house and oversee and document. You know, it wasn't this kind of roughshod, yeah, we've seen you, whatever, had a little chat, had a cup of tea. No, they were really invested in the care of Mrs. Dunn, you know. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's that's sort of harking me back to the days, even when I was growing up, which I was born in eighty six. Was yeah, um, you know, we, I, my mother had a doctor, and she, that doctor saw my mother every time she visited him at the GP. He attended her postnatally, and he attend, you know, he was my doctor when I then started growing up. Which obviously nowadays you would, it's just implausible to imagine that that type type of continuity of care could exist in the system. And it's crazy how fast that has happened, you know, yeah. that, that's crazy how in such a, you know, in one lifetime that has completely eroded that, that interpersonal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's one or two people. Yeah, where I am now, I see just any random, whoever's available, and there's probably about 10 or 12 of them, so it's rarely the same um, each time. Yeah. Um, Made me think some of what you were talking about the technocracy um element made me think about ctgs and the advent of ctgs and i think they have a lot to they they shoulder a lot of the blame for this you know in, very impersonal um provision of care because yeah now it's sort of like the midwives are staring at that little trace coming out and not taking in the woman's bigger picture you know sounds is she making how does she look is she hot is she cold like what what's the room like what does the partner look like um the, yeah it's sort of taking these tiny elements you and objects yeah yeah it's those sort of interpersonal human nuances that you and I know we know when a woman starts to change smell at things shit's starting to get real we know mm -hmm. the sounds we know the sometimes quite literally shit is starting to get real it's literally <laughs> starting to get real yeah exactly um and that for us is pretty exciting to wear, like, hell yeah. Yeah, she's nearly there. Yeah, this is amazing. We know. Whereas, you know, if you're working under the sort of obstetric model, and I include midwives in that as well, you yeah, are, unfortunately, um, which you can speak to, um, you know, we're losing that art. It, you know, midwifery is an art. It's an art, really, to be mm. able to know without ever laying a hand on a woman where they're at in their labor that's an art form that's a that's a an observational art form that it takes years to um finesse 
if you're staring at a you know a set of observations on a screen that we know are completely fallible and don't always have the best um i mean they move the baby moves the baby moves away and so you're then rigid to essentially a computer that it, it isn't it isn't completely accurate at all and then because uh hospital have to have this sort of ctg scan they then have a constant reading of it which means if anything comes up they have to act on it and for the yeah. i don't think i've ever been to an emergency c-section in all the years i've been doing this where i ever felt it was and i'm not a medical person but i've seen a lot of birth where it ever mm -hmm. out it was a true emergency no absolutely not they're they rarely are aren't they and i've seen a woman who looked to be birthing beautifully um in the hospital she was a hypnobirthing mama and simply because she'd um submitted to ctgs and electronic fetal monitoring and it looked like a d-cell that lasted more than three minutes she was whisked yeah. into I've the theater i've seen many of them i was yeah. at birth uh coming up to two weeks um a home birth that was totally nutty sabotage the reason i've written the piece sabotage not just based on this woman's experience, but on a, you know, accumulation of many, but this woman was utterly, utterly sabotaged. So she opted for a home birth and yet was sabotaged by the hospital who would not relinquish any control over a woman that wasn't even on their premises. So this is where we're at in our um, evolution of uh, obstetrics, whereby obstetric is essentially being brought into the home, whether you effing like it or not. So, yeah, and I mean, that has to do with the training of midwives. As you know, I've I've spent two sort of horrific years, to be honest, attempting to get my midwifery um, qualification, but it was just too, too traumatic and there isn't any true autonomy anymore for midwives. You can't be the type of midwife that you want to be because you're beholden to the obstetric model and the risk of litigation for the hospital and for the trust and you're beholden to the nursing and midwifery council and the this and the that and it's, yeah, it's just, well, it makes you worry. Yeah. yeah, and this is exactly what happened. The midwives on the day were absolutely lovely, do not get me wrong trying to be out of the way you know we're trying to give that woman everything they needed barely you know listening in but barely um and really trying to give her space they were in a completely different room downstairs mum was upstairs and but mm. the hospital would not stop calling them and sadly the woman volunteered the information that her waters are gone so not only was she a vaginal birth after c-section at home <gasps> <laughs> Now her waters are gone and now that information has to be shared. That information was shared and they would not relinquish control and that birth ended in a C-section. So even yeah. with me there, a very vocal advocate with a lot of experience, because once you get into the cogs of a, of a, of a labouring woman and you start using words like dead baby, which was completely and utterly uh, used many times over the phone, then that woman is then a situation where cortisol is running the show. She doubts mm. that, and no, no woman in that that vulnerable situation is is going to have capacity to say, "Well, I'm just going to take that risk and whatever." You know, it's of course, a by a system of oppression against her, a one body and baby. Yes, that's heartbreaking. I'm really sorry. I'm glad she had because you know even if it still ended in cesarean I'm sure you advocated for her and did everything you could to try to keep the oxytocin flowing yeah um yeah it's why it's one of the reasons why I free birthed uh, mm -hmm. in and I'm just so grateful that I had you know there was nobody there who could have shared information and could have um tried to get in my head and you know I I, I just had such a strong knowing that you know when I'm sick or in pain I just want to go by myself be in a quiet dark space deal with it until it's past I don't want people looking at me I don't want people touching me I don't want people asking me questions and so that's how I chose to do it and you and also as a as a person as a, as a woman laboring the last thing you want to do is have intellectual conversations. The last thing you want to do is stimulate your neocortex. You don't want to be in that space. The same space you 
go into when we're having sex. I'm not having sex in Tesco's. (laughs) 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 Club cards. Given that for a reason. Isn't it? Because midwives used to be and should be the experts in physiological birth. So they should know that darkness and privacy and quiet and not being questioned and quizzed and asked this and that is optimal but yeah unfortunately the training isn't teaching them that isn't showing them that they rarely see natural physiological birth unfolding without disturbance so they don't know that it's possible i I remember you saying after coming out your first year we were on some one of our many groups that you know we're all on um, Mm and you were saying that you hadn't seen one physiological birth in your was that your first year or second year yep so in you're expected to witness five birth so you're not involved in the delivery which I mean who is apart from the mum and baby involved in the delivery anyway but the the expectation is throughout your three years training you're supposed to witness five deliver or catch or you know facilitate uh 40 and yeah after my first year because of the um induction and instrumental and surgical rates I still hadn't witnessed my five I mean that says a lot and you will not be alone in that no okay so you also mentioned i love all these um words that i'm also into radical responsibility can you speak to that um like what it what it means how can women still access it under the oppressive um industrial medical system that we currently have i can't (laughs) (laughs) i was hoping it wouldn't be that suspecting it might be i'm I'm yeah if you okay let me just sort of briefly explain what my understanding of radical responsibility is um radical responsibility is taking full ownership of your body your choices and ensuring that you are the authority in that decision making whilst also accepting the consequences of that so in from a birthing capacity um understanding that you might be walking a path that might not be supported by medicine and Mm -hmm you are willing and happy to walk with the consequences of that as well. That to me is radical responsibility. I yeah. realise that the, you know, it, it, sometimes I'm a bit at odds with a lot of this stuff because I, I, I walk it myself, but I also am aware that it can be a bit of a buzzwordy kind of thing, you know. For me, um, in my own life, I uh, stopped taking any pharmaceutical medications when I was around 20, 21, 22. I moved to New York. And for the first sort of 22 years of my life, I was uh, on all kinds of inhalers because of chronic, like really bad asthma, hospitalized a lot throughout my childhood, two to three, uh, you know, antibiotics a year. And so when I moved to New York, that was the kind of start of the internet, how old I am, the internet. And so it was kind of a strip feeding of information and how, you know, diet can actually impact your health and I know there's on on steroids inhalers you know and it was just as am I I'm not obviously my asthma wasn't as bad at the time I kind of slightly grown out but I was taking it a few times a day and came to the gradual realization that maybe if I stopped taking this thing maybe my lung capacity would grow it was just this kind of like okay well let's try it and let's see how you get on for a week and then by the end of that year of being uh, overseas I wasn't mm. taking um and things like sort of keeping an eye on dairy and that for me was the kind of start of me taking responsibility for my health um and then you know I kind of got into this whole mentality of really questioning if I did go to the doctor what was that thing that they were telling me that I needed to take Um, god it's so isn't it because they they don't even attempt to give provide fully informed consent these days so yeah it's so important to be questioning and challenging questioning yeah. challenging and also um saying okay well this illness that I have or this this you know symptom that I have what is it what does it stem from uh how can I get rid of it how can I eat better what can I you know what are the things around it that will eradicate it but also what's the what's the source of it what's the origin where is it coming from and mm. so it was you know Taking this path isn't always the easiest route. I've had psoriasis on my leg that I got rid of. It took me a year. Um, I had, you know, serious depression about 12 years before I became a doula. 
had serious uh, depression um, and really, you know, probably would have gone on antidepressants and all the things. But because I was mm. sort of 10 years into this kind of taking health responsibility, that never seemed like a pathway to me. And mm. so it was really a sort of undoing in that I had to look really deep and see why I was depressed, you know, where it was coming from and, and dig deep and do the work to, yeah. uh, to find myself in a better place and knowing that okay you know when these depressive kind of phases hit what do you do around it where can you be what what can you seek that will make you feel better and that was you know game changing and then I became a doula and that the whole doula thing really is about questioning absolutely everything you know from looking what's on the back of packets which I kind of was doing anyway to you know I've got my little little dog sat asleep beside me here who's 11 years of age now and everything I do with her you know isn't just I don't just accept what the vet says I want to know why I would be injecting her why why would I give her this food off the shelf why would I when there's you know better things and and more in line with health and that isn't going to have her going to the or aging every two minutes or you know it's there's a lot of things that it just a sense radical responsibility opens up the sort of information highway that you can access without being told what you need to do yeah absolutely and that was that's pretty much how I see it also um I'm not as deep into the journey as you um I haven't taken pharmaceutical medicine probably only for about a year maybe two but yeah I agree that you know, a lot of the a lot of the motivation is money. You know, they they need us to remain either ill or in on treatment to to perpetuate the system and keep it all rolling. So um, keep the gravy boat running. So yeah, that's been a real eye opener for me. Like, especially, it's funny that you mentioned mental health because I think that's pro- probably the most misunderstood um, area because I think people think that mental that psychiatry is way more scientific than it is and that they actually know you know that you're you'll have a chemical imbalance and it's this particular chemical and this does this will increase it or decrease it they don't it's it's essentially it's probably like a group of white middle-aged middle-class psychiatrists who decide you know there's this condition now and it's the criteria for it is this and we want them to take this medication when you diagnose them with it and yeah it's not particularly scientific no I mean and and speaking of scientific you know you only have to look at um policies that are gleaned from um or sorry that are made within obstetrics it's something like nine to twelve percent of evidence-based science is put into policies in maternity that's a really really low amount of science so you you can be sure to understand that it's not really about the science it's actually about the culture so mm-hmm. you know the, I guess the sort of most prominent one that you we can bring to mind is induction inducing for post terms you know people get to 38 weeks and then the whole induction chat start, starts with people getting booked in for an induction because you can't go overdue mm. and no one or hardly anyone unless they've had you know decent birth prep asks the question about well what is a due date where did it come from why are we aligning with the fact Mm. that a baby should be born around a a specific date does that mean everybody gestates at the same level where's the science around it when you explain it to people they're like what yeah it's 1700 wasn't it when it started being the yeah. calculation it was made by a German physicist like yeah it's just crazy Un- non-evidence-based practice is still going on in in the obstetric um, industry so many of them I mean that's just one but so 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 many of them um and that's why you know I'm really pleased that, that you're doing this podcast because at the very least people should be questioning anything to do with their health it's okay that you go to the doctor I never want to sit here sanctimoniously I'm surprised as not you know I came out of depression it was really 
that's not the point that I'm saying or, or I think that you're saying. It's more about having the having the audacity to be really curious about things, mm. whatever exactly. it is to what you're you know what you're being asked to put into your body and just asking the questions and also being really um being really open to what the dissenting voices within that uh paradigm is whether it's obstetrics you know whether it's you know psychiatrics whatever what do the other people who are not captured by an industry saying the people that are not mm. paid a wage what do they have to say about it and then you might come to a a better understanding it might take you back to where you started and there's no judgment on that but it's mm -hmm. about opening your mind to all possibilities that this one finite conclusive thing might not be the thing that's for you and you might end up going down a pathway that goes on forever without any uh, betterment yeah absolutely because contrary to when you began so you were you're clearly a pioneer um groundbreaking stuff like we've got facebook and PubMed and and I you can you know the layperson can access what? studies and uh, literature and scientific material at their you know at their fingertips so um yeah it makes sense to be to be exploring and and it's easy yeah, yeah. it's absolutely easy um it you know it might be a bit time consuming but it's just asking the question and it's and it's looking in places that, you know, you might not just be given an NCT or um, mm. you definitely will not see in the NHS. And actually, oftentimes, if you ask the doctor who's sat in front of you saying that, you know, you need X, Y, Z, if you ask for evidence, you're often shunned. Or like I was a few weeks ago on the phone when the doctor was sort of, I mean, literally shouting down the phone um, when I asked for evidence. I mean, he went crazy. So if you're a medical practitioner and someone's asking you, could you guide me to the evidence of the X, Y, Z, and you're, that has a visceral response in you, you have to yeah. question why that is because surely you'd want to share that information with, with you know, parents who I was advocating for. Surely you would want them to have the most up-to-date information unless you are trying to push them into a route that works for you, the doctor rather than not, to make up radical responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, if, if you have a profession, a level of professional curiosity yeah. as a doula, you know, as a general practitioner, he should have the same, if not more, you know, delve deep and, yeah, dissect it all. So how do you feel about the name doula? I, I, I maybe misrepresented you as a doula at the start. I think so, though, because it's on your, I think it's on your bio. But um, I've been enjoying playing with my professional identity a bit lately and using, like, the I, the um, term birth celebrant or birth witness because it just sort of like takes... Quite nice, isn't it? Yeah, and I think Kemi Johnson as well um, has started maybe not self-identifying yet, but, like, just exploring what that does to the, to the relationship because I feel like it takes me a step further away from this idea of me being any type of expert or guide you know which I think you know harks back to this radical responsibility and the woman actually being the the focus the authority in her birth imagine that Absolutely. Um, I've moved away from the word doula I have to say I guess because for a couple of reasons um it in in, in my vintage I've kind of come to the idea that a lot of what we, and I, you know, not to say I'm completely, you know, I would don't dare call me a doula. That's not where I'm at. Um, I have a lot of training and a lot of experience and professional sort of um, experience with that with that word. But more latterly, I feel like the word birthkeeper is in line with holding space. That's what it feels like to me. Doula. Mm -hmm this kind of almost kind of harking on about what trainings we've done and are we a register you know are we a recognized doula this kind of license licensing um practicalities around that and actually I don't know if that really serves women I think it's almost tipping its hat towards obstetrics and 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 the fear I have a little bit around this kind of you know license short licensing it's another word I can't say um mm -hmm is that you know if we if we have to become aligned with 
being a, a registered or recognized doula to mm, US territory. We're going into legality territory, or actually it should just be what yeah. are willing and experienced in supporting women and families as they take their tentative steps to birth and be with them in those early weeks and months. So I guess I'm at a, at a bit of a crossroads with it, really. Birthkeeper feels like it can yeah, but sentiment. Um, but I do like birthkeepers because yeah. that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah, literally, you're just there to to yeah. observe. And, and you're up there to observe, you're there to, to hold the space, but very quietly. I always say to people when, when I interview with them, um, you know, this kind of chatty scouse person that you'll get to know who's really got a lot to say in the birth prep and will laugh a lot through it. It'll be a lot of fun, blah, blah, blah. And I swear a lot. Get used to that. Um, that person <laughs> day is, I mean... Be there won't be there I mean mm. you know, to be able to just be in a space with a woman when she's sort of roaring through birth and all of the shades of labor mm. smallest quietest person in the room I mean you, we're crawling into rooms aren't we literally crawling into <laughs> yeah crawling around the birth space with lights off trying to find like things <laughs> I actually at birth that's that's how I see it mm. It's not about what we do in the birth space. And that's another reason why I find myself a little bit more, uh, not a loggerheads with the doula thing, but more aligned with birth keeping in that it is holding space and it's not about doing. It's not about mm. being able to rebozo. You know, it's not about the tools in your bag. I hate this whole, what have you got on your bag thing? It's like, well, what have I said? A pair of dirty knickers and an old Twix. <laughs> My shit Keeping it real. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, it was, I was I was interested when you were speaking about the doula UK and the accreditation angle of things. Um, because I, it it reminds me of like the the turn of the century when midwifery itself began began to be professionalised, and I feel like we could stumble into that those same errors that were made there because in the UK at least um before midwifery became professionalized it was your your wise woman from down the road um who'd you know had nine kids herself and they'd also lay out the dead so they were you know they were familiar and comfortable with that threshold part um and yeah I think a lot of well, it's the the legacy of the maternity system we currently have is from that that turning point when it, those women were pushed out and they were no longer allowed and they didn't have the financial resources to to become professional um, and they they weren't you know really welcome in the in the universities or the colleges anyway. So yeah, I think um, wives, those dirty midwives with those with uh, their herbs and with their, <laughs> and. Their, to just be with women when they gave birth no absolutely that you've put it way more eloquently than I have that is the kind of shift that I have with it in that yeah I don't want it to sort of move towards this you know you have to be licensed and registered because that then means that you know more doulas will start to work for the NHS and we won't be this kind of more free-spirited uh autonomous you know absolutely movement that it that it really should be at its grassroots it should just be um yeah I mean from birth to death really that's it's that life lifespan isn't it and that's exactly a historically authentic midwifery was cradle to grave um mm. witnessing supporting people holding them in that space from 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 cradle to grave essentially that yeah, because, you know, the, they talk about the postpartum period, but, you know, the postpartum period is forever. Once you've had a baby, you are then postpartum. So it strikes me as sort of funny and a little bit sinister that there's there's the, there's this push for like, oh, you know, you can experience this in your postpartum because women are always postpartum. So are, are we risky just by virtue of being able to give birth to children? Yeah, you know what we're trying to say possibly yes <laughs> yes I think women are risky anyway aren't they I mean there's no there's no bounds to the level of risk that women you know propose anyway and mm. especially women who have a lot to say like you and I we're definitely risky 
I mean, you, oh. you've worked in the There's no one who knows it more than you guys. Like, I honestly take my hat off to you guys for, for, for treading that path. I know that you got a lot out of it, but my God, did it take a lot from you as well? Yeah, and, you know, I, I assumed it would be difficult and I assumed that I wouldn't fit in and that I'd have to witness things that I wasn't okay with and maybe bite my lip a little bit but I had no idea how much and how awful the stuff that's going on on obstetric units all up and down the land is. And, yeah, I just couldn't. I not. It's not that I couldn't get to the end. I'm sure I could have ploughed through and did my final year, but I don't want to be in that what? coven, you know. I don't – I would – I, I, I want – at the beginning I was like, oh, I'd love the, the, the role and the label and this – status in in a in a sense of being a midwife but I no longer hold them aloft as something really worthy and valuable because they're obstetric nurses unfortunately in this country now That's and it's actually the birth keepers and the birth celebrants that are the experts or the yeah. you know the ones that can really help women to facilitate natural birth so yeah back, sorry <laughs> back to my roots as a doula yeah, or birth keeper yeah <laughs> And I feel kind of I'm more, um, you know, as I, I, I probably, you've probably seen on, on my Instagram that I basically kind of made a statement that I was only supporting home birth. And that in itself is also a transitory phase because the reality is I can support home birth, but we still have obstetric nurses coming into that home. And, you know, two out of 10 births might be absolutely wonderful because the second time mom third time mom it went really fast nothing was required in terms of or there was no time to um have any clinical stuff or any interventions happen to that birthing woman but I've come to realize that actually the reality is that it's it's becoming impossible to work even in that space with medwives you know we call them medwives they are obstetric yeah. nurses and they, as you say, are beholden to a license which ensures that they have to practice with obstetrics in the back of their head at all times. So even if they don't feel like the things that they have to put into place, like the midwives through the week, they knew, they articulated to me how frustrated they were, but they had no autonomy. So again, I'm sort of, you know, moving in a space that's probably going to be supporting people in the free birth community um yeah it's, it's, with it. yeah it's a weird transit transitory phase for me because obviously I have you know I've been doing this for over a decade and it probably was always going to go in this direction but there's mm. something about saying that out loud that I really struggle with yeah you know and and why it, it's beyond me because I guess even I've been institutionalized, even though I never worked for an NHS, but I've seen a lot of birth. I've been in a lot of, you know, hospitals and home births with a lot of medwives. And even I struggle with the sort of untangling from the institutions that have play heavily on me. Yeah, I think it's impossible to have grown up in this culture and not to have taken a little bit on, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it makes me think of my birth in May. Was It was funny when my... So I, I free birthed completely, so there was nobody. It was just me and my son. And But then he needed to be cut from... He needed to have the cord cut because it turned out to be twins. And so I had to invite a friend, a neighbour in, to cut the cord, and she remained for the delivery of the second twin. And she had no... She hasn't had children herself. She's in her mid-20s. She had no um, medical training and no midwifery training. And she wasn't a doula, not in the birth world at all. And she began to scream at me to push. Really? Like that. Yeah, because I think, and it was so strange because I experienced fetal ejection reflex. So I didn't need to push. So it was, But it was just so interesting. It's like seemed to be like from what she'd seen on films and sitcoms when a woman's giving birth and you're there you scream at her to push and it was just so strange in the end I was kind of like less words less words 
<laughs> it was really funny. That is, it's actually blown my mind a bit. Yeah, and she's from, she's from Canada. Um, so, you know, this model and this sort of visual of a woman who's like desperate and screaming and needs help and you're supposed to tell her to push is is global yeah needs saving exactly wow yeah it was quite amusing because i was just i was thinking i i, I couldn't stop this baby coming out if i tried let alone push push <laughs> i need anything i need to restrain it and give it yeah so yeah wow. really interesting is, again you <laughs> it's know just a victim of our own sort of culture really in that you know it's we we're only really fed these kind of imagery of women lying on the back sucked up to a machine being screamed at by at least five people in the room push push yeah. is you know the woman woman wouldn't know uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, i saw bringing birth home on your instagram can you tell us a bit about bringing birth home yeah um so yeah as i sort of moved into supporting women's birth their babies at home um I guess it's become a little bit of a slogan of mine whether it stays or not I don't know because as I move more towards sort of free birth community is that even a relevant statement anyway um we'll see as I say at the moment I'm in a very sort of transitory phase in my professional um evolution um I'm going through a huge rebranding I'm about to change my entire website um and so I guess you know all of all of this newness will be echoed but bringing birth home really means to me is obviously home birth but also the sort of the semblance of women and families having everything they need in that homestead in that home place of home and not needing to step over the threshold because you know women have everything they need anything with inside their own bodies to birth their babies we we know yeah. that but mm -hmm. also it's just that kind of that semblance of that you don't require anything else outside of your home in especially in those first few weeks and months and that being able to cut off from the outside world will enable you to find instinct and to get into in attunement with your baby and your body and your partner Love that. Yeah, and mm. just getting into a rhythm and 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 sometimes not a rhythm and that's okay, you know, the whole world outside these four walls can stop, do the mm. thing, you can just literally be in your own space at home, in your own body. Oh, that's lovely, I love that, yeah, because there, it is like a whole industry, isn't it? I recently ordered a book, I haven't read it yet, um, my book obsession is absurd, um, but yeah, <laughs> same, yeah. Uh, I ordered the business of baby, and I think essentially it's all about that whole idea that women are told oh but you'll need this and you'll need this one thousand pounds that and yeah a lot of it is just nonsense isn't it all of it's focused on an industry all is it all of it is essentially a sort of carousel for an industry um to to continuously make money from baby monitors to prams to clothing you know to wiper warmers i mean seriously what are these? Wiper warmers? warmers. They're big in the States. Oh, they God. Wipers in this like little package. Of God. <laughs> I mean, all yeah. of them. Exactly. And, you know, the landmines are grown and grown and grown with all this plastic shit that you mm -hmm. never need. You need a couple of pairs of arms, pair, pair of boobs. Pair of boobs helps, yeah. Jugs. Around, yeah, in the bed, around the bed, off the bed. I mean, that's the kind of onus and that's the journey that you really would be considering taking in the, in those first few weeks. That's it. Having people okay. good food. And that's part of my postpartum is um, ensuring that people are nourished in those early days and weeks. I'm really big into to food um, and, and just ensuring that people have really good hearty food to replenish, repair, mm -hmm. and get the sort of, you know, build the blood back as Nicola Goodall would say bring the build the blood back um all the blood that you've lost which is completely normal part of um, giving birth you're building it back that collagen that elasticity um any depletion that's happened in the you know growing your baby and it happens it's going to happen you can build that back as you go and just making sure that people have just things that they need to hand and also a, a pair of ears 
that mm-hmm. are without any judgment. I think that's so important in the in the kind of early weeks and months because there's 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 enough ways to kind of like go on your phone and Google what's needed or you know listen to a friend's horror story or you know go down the rabbit hole of like what you're doing wrong in breastfeeding and the fact that your baby's not in a routine of you know three days old Mm. but actually just being able to kind of be in our own space and grow into that early mothering experience without any outside um you know distraction is so important and I I'm I'm a person who's never had a baby I knew from an early age I never wanted children which is utterly bizarre to anyone (laughs) so shocking to me I assumed you had everyone thinks I've got about 10 kids no I I knew at 18 I didn't want kids I made my mother sign a piece of paper to say don't don't hassle me for kids because I've never want I don't want them and yet from the age of 15 I had like a a babysitting empire (laughs) And I trained as a nanny, trained as a nursery nurse, you name it. I've always worked with kids from the age of 16. Yeah, I feel like that just makes you even more like nurturing and compassionate for for that. That's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah, it's really shocked me. <laughs> yeah, people are really surprised and when I you know when I meet mums for the first time, they're like, How many have you got, Joe? And I'm like, No, I've got, you know. Yeah. Oh well yeah, I mean fur babies are way better anyway, so (laughs) don't worry about that. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, the postpartum is such a neglected area, isn't it? Like my postpartum was an absolute horror show because I was um like basically kept prisoner on a on a ward for ten weeks postpartum. So the food was appalling. Um but yeah, this is not this is not that space to talk about that. Um, do, do you want to discuss? I'm just curious, not curious. Um, aware that we're coming up to an hour point. Are you okay to carry on? Yeah. 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 Would you like to do, talk to us a bit about the human microbiome and vaginal seeding? I never yeah. know if it's or vaginal. I say vaginal. I don't know what a vaginal. I think I say. Uh, you say vaginal. Oh, do you? Okay, maybe you're right. Anyway, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, the micro- human microbiome is basically underpins all of our health. There's so much more um, research and knowledge about it now. Um, so our gut, our gut microbiome and its uh, myriad of microbiota starts from birth. And so, as you well know, babies that are born that are squeezed through the vaginal root um, lick their mum's perineum and their vagina on the way out and in, internalise and ingesting those brilliant bacteria, sometimes poo, we've all seen that um, mm-hmm. at birth and that that sort of internalisation kickstarts a, a gut immunity and that gut immunity is helped along by mum and baby being close together, skin to skin for weeks after the baby's been born swapping those communities of bacteria i'm doing this because i'm sort of gestating towards um towards a uh, breastfeeding relationship um but you know skin to skin and then breastfeeding is the icing on the cake isn't it because especially that sort of very early breastfeeding is absolutely jam-packed with immunoglobins uh stem cells and and all that good stuff um Mm -hmm. Vaginal seeding, um, I, d- I haven't heard that much about it recently, actually. I think it was um, a big thing about sort of five, six years ago, wasn't it? Maybe a bit longer. Um, and then it kind of got thrown off the table because there was no evidence around it. Because, you know, everything in obstetrics requires evidence until it's something that obstetrics wants to do and it doesn't require evidence anywhere yeah. press. I mean, it's just, a, you know, for anyone who's who's listening into this, um if a woman's had a c-section um obviously the baby comes out of the tummy the sunroof and uh, misses out on that entire sort of bacterial um vaginal bacteria as it um, emerges from the from the vagina and so the thought process behind it is is that people mums or partners or midwives or birth keepers um could support mums in taking a swab from the vagina and then that swab can be put inside the baby's cheek, around the baby's mouth, 
um, in order to try to facilitate that um, bacterial exchange and to help to kickstart that gut microbiota. Um, mm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I know it's been sort of, I've seen it very much discredited by midwives as being just gross, which, you know, that's not evidence-based. It's just um, a, re a reflection of their, you know, I think there is a general, amongst the, the general population, there's this idea that, like, humans are pretty disgusting, you know, like sweating and farting and organic fluids oh. and are just like so horrific and awful and uncouth that we should just try to distance ourselves from that as much as possible um so of course the idea of swabbing the vagina and then swabbing a infant's mouth would be like appalling to those those people but the science you know it makes sense if if you've come out um abdominally so you haven't had um opportunity to be seeded with that bacteria then why not but um so you say it's gone out of style has it since i mean obviously i've been to that many c-sections in the last couple of years i was at one a few weeks ago um i think we, we spoke about it yeah i mean i don't hear that many people talking about it but maybe i'm kind of because i'm kind of out of the hospital um yeah. realm that i'm not supporting that many c-sections anymore um I mean, it, for me, it makes logical sense. And you don't have to ask permission from your care provider. That's the thing. I think people say, well, I, I spoke to my doctor about it. It's like, well, that's cool. But the thing is, is that... Your baby, your vagina, if you can get a swab, <laughs> go for it. It's really yeah. not. And I think a few a few years ago, people were literally um, taking in a piece of gauze. We're putting it into, um, you know, sterile little kind of, Ziploc bag. I know it's not fully sterile, but it's never been used. It's clean as, and and doing that the night before, and then and then using it that way. Um, no, you're you're probably not going to get an obstetrician that thinks it's a good idea because the word that's always bandied around is it's woo woo. There's no evidence, but who's going to pay for research into that? Yeah, exactly. It's we they don't do research on pregnant women and birth anyway that's a big taboo they just don't you know they, they ethically won't do it uh, in science and so it's an area that's forgotten about but no one will pay for that research anyway it's not in their best interest to do it and also like what you've just said about um you know we're, we're kind of at a place in our humanity where we like you know we think that by sort of clinically distancing ourselves from being a mammal is the way forward uh, yeah. when actually it's completely the opposite you know we need to be getting our hands in soil we need to yeah. be you know completely and utterly understanding our cycles as women that's a game changer um, mm. and understanding what we're putting in our bodies and bringing birth home and bringing birth back to centrum females as an authority in their own birth experience and postpartum experience rewild yeah it's like want to try to be so civilized that we deny the fact that we're like biological and part of nature you know it's bizarre yeah well again it's a, it harks back to this uh, this idea about of an industry doesn't it um, mm. that's, that's been propagated by um harmonized industries like from pharmaceuticals to um you know agricultural methods uh to the baby industry they are all harmonized industries at the uh, corporations at the end of the day that seek mm. money out of people um sort of needing to feel better through their products rather than finding ways to feel better within their own body and feel yeah. feeling better rather than buying and consuming into better yeah so interesting like i've been looking into the german new medicine um arena lately not i'm not by any means like i don't know I'm very, i know very little at the moment but i've just sort of tentatively taken a look and yeah that whole idea of like when your body is when you're sick or ill uh is is because your body has found a problem and is healing that problem and if we gave it more than th sort of 30 seconds before we marched into the gp and got antibiotics or got you know something from the pharmacy who knows what the capacity of our bodies to just heal that thing 
you know, yeah, you might have to stay in bed and just hydrate and nourish for a day or two, but, you know, that could be healed internally and you don't need to then give money to the pharmaceutical industry. So, yeah, it's been something I'm exploring now. We're very scared to sit tight. You know, we've we've moved into this kind of era where sit, sitting down and, and finding ways to heal or switching off or sleeping or resting, radical resting. We can't do mm. that. We have to always be on this kind of, you know, productive uh, wheel yeah. doing, communicating, making plans, producing all the time. When the reality is if you can allow yourself to feel sick, allow yourself to have a temperature, try not to mm -hmm. take hydrate, lie down, go to bed early, then, you know, and then make a judgment on it. If that's happening in, you know, a week, you're still feeling the same, then maybe you take, but you won't be. But people jump at the first hurdle, you know, people, babies have a snotty nose or a temperature for 24 hours and it's, you know, a race to A&E or to the GP. We're actually fundamentally internally that baby is trying to find mechanisms which is often through a temperature to heal mm -hmm. their own body yeah. so a, a having a sort of spiked temperature is your body trying to eradicate dead cells isn't it it's autophagy and so mm -hmm. you know it can work in your way to heal faster i think i'm the only person i know as an covid yeah it's, it's miraculous isn't it and it's because i'm the same i not to my knowledge, I've never had it. And, you know, why is that? Um, possibly because I wasn't running out and getting a PCR test every two days. But equally, I had a test with the, the other one, the lateral flow antigen, and I still didn't get it. So, you know, immu natural immunity, as we now know for a fact, was, was more, much more effective than the limited, maybe even non-existent immunity that you got from yeah. the jabs. So, yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, isn't it? I think we are now in such a sort of fast, um, fast-paced world that we want solutions overnight. And mm, sitting still to wait for a baby, boring. Uh, allow yeah. get it, get it all moving. Boring, <laughs> you know, and you know, you name it. It's like ex let's expedite everything. And in that expedition, expediting um, phase is is a product, you know, to help you get over it faster. Mm. Might be a, there might be an issue with taking that product, but no, don't worry about it. It will it will eliminate the illness. It will get you through there faster, and you won't. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very guilty of that. Like I'll be tired and bored, and there's nothing for me to watch, but I'll still just like cling to my phone of a night time instead of just turning the light off, putting the phone away, and going to sleep. I'm like, oh, but I'm sure I can find something to entertain me to All keep me up. Yeah, we're all addicted to these bloody phones. We are absolutely, uh, completely and utterly addicted to them. It's it's absolute. I mean, I run a business off it. Um, yeah, excuse me. <laughs> You're in Jamaican also. You've got to keep in contact with people. Talk to everyone in the back home. Yeah, it made me think of um. There's this web uh, Instagram that I recently started following. I think it's called Slow Contraception. So it's talking about how you know. If you get to know your cycle yeah. and do that by charting and by looking at your cervical mucus and looking at your temperature and your mood, um, then you don't need to go on these horrible poisonous, um, what are they called? Contraceptive pills. Yeah. Yeah, like the so, sort of technology stuff, the ones to help support women to get pregnant. Mm. Or Oh yeah, what uh, are you talking about? Um, what are they called? There's one called. I used to have it on my phone. I don't have the app anymore. I just do it all by by hand now. <laughs> I've gone old fashioned, but same thing. They just sort of you just tell it when your cycle begins, and then it counts the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know so much more about the pill now, don't we? I think. Um, I think that's going to be a hard uh, chunk of information for well, hard pill to swallow for many people who you know, age, I used to live with a, um, I used to live with a PhD lecturer, highly intelligent woman who'd mm. 37, had been on the pill since she was 20 uh, and didn't, and, and never asked her doctor the side effects. She didn't know uh, what the side effects were. She didn't fully know how the contraceptive pill worked and had never had a full discussion. 
I'd essentially been put on the pill at age 20 and was still on it. My goodness, and yeah. to me. Yeah, because the, the list of side effects is, like, extensive, isn't it? And, yeah, I guess it's this, it goes back to this idea about speed and convenience and instant gratification that, you know, who cares what the side effects are or what the other alternatives are because this one was given to me quickly and easily by my GP and it it's done the job. So why even investigate further? And it's also that plastering over of symptoms. It's like people put on on it obviously to so they don't they don't get pregnant, but also this thing of like plastering over endometriosis, you know, mm -hmm. and lots of different issues with periods instead of getting to the core root of the issue. And Absolutely. and and finding a true diagnosis about why these things are happening to those women, you know, just mm. and then when they come off the pill and try to get pregnant or, you know, when they hit menopause or whatever it is, it's a rude awakening for your body because your body is now having to orchestrate its endogenous hormones and it's not had to do that. And periods on a pill is not the same. They just break through bleeds. They're not the same. Um, mm. I think, you know, from this you know this kind of awakening over the last few years with, with regards to a hormones and b the contraceptive pill i think a lot a lot of women are waking up to their you know female health mm, yeah definitely i've seen that i've noticed that revolution happening oh. getting more interested in the menopause and what it is and when it starts and how they can treat it um I'm hoping that because I started this charting in my mid thirties, I'm gonna absolutely like breeze through the menopause. <laughs> However, my mother has been going through the menopause for like fifteen years. Jeez. Or I guess she's post menopausal, technically speaking, because her periods have ceased, but she still has symptoms and she's now looking into hormone replacement therapy because um she was never offered it because she she's had a pulmonary embolism. So one of the reasons why they won't give women HRT is if you've had any, yeah, you know, like pulmonary or cardiac issues. But, you know, you're, they'll happily give women the pill, which has a huge um, impact on cardiovascular health. So it's bizarre that they're so in, in, interested in its link to HRT. Yeah, I'm loving all the sort of menopause stuff now. Millie Hills, uh, Millie Hill, uh, Maisie Hill, sorry, Maisie, has got um, a few amazing books out, Period is one, and um, Perimenopause is the other. And it's, I mean, when I started to read Perimenopause, I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> Am I gonna? I'm 46, as I told you, and I'm like, oh, God. It's great that knowledge is power, but sometimes it, like, I had to read it in, like, sections. Because... Yeah, I've like yeah, that and you're like I'm gonna get all of that oh my and I've not had kids so and I just have to like read it put it away come back to it read it you know and I think if sorry is it supposed to be different then if you haven't had children your menopause is I think because if you haven't had that kind of huge fluctuation of um oxytocin I think it can impact um oh, I mean interesting I'm um really healthy and all of that so I'm hoping I'm hoping it helps. Um, I try to stay active and do all the things, but at the end of the day, I'm definitely not an angel. You know, I'm de I still drink. I still, you know, I still go out and that kind of thing. I'm not going to sit at home like an angel waiting to get the menopause. <laughs> no, that was not advised. <laughs> um, I've run the grey hair thing. And that's about it. But um, yeah, I think I think with so much of this stuff, you kind of have to um, take it on board and let it sit with you and then come back to it it's probably the same with learning more about the whole pregnancy and birth thing I think so many of us take things on like it's and especially women who are found themselves pregnant and they're like oh my god I need to literally inhale every bit of information from every from every podcast from every and that's impossible you know really we should be engaging with it from sex education sex yeah I'll say like I would love to offer um some sex and relationship courses because for for younger women, you know, teens or preteens even, because I feel I'm not sure because I I don't work in education, but certainly when I was growing up, the sex education was just so rudimentary and so shit, and I'm sure it hasn't improved. Um, 
I had my sex education the year you were born. <laughs> and telly, the telly got wheeled out into like this like hall. Oh, I remember the big massive screen on like <laughs> I'll never forget it. And my little mate Moses, who's kind of still mates with more of a Facebook mate now, but um I remember him sitting there going, What? No. And he was like flabbergasted, he was right behind me. He's like, Don't like devastated because he learned the babies came out with the vagina and he was so confused oh bless him <laughs> yeah i was did you get split up oh so you didn't get split up you you had yeah see that that was the most bizarre part about it for me was that they took the boys off into their own little room and they let the girls stay and it was like why have you why have you been secretive why do they need to know stuff that we don't need to know like it's so sick yeah, because we talk about periods with the girls and the boys can't possibly know that. They couldn't handle that. Their heads would explode. <laughs> exactly. Oh, listen, it's been so lovely talking to you. Um, would you, I, I'm supposed to do this at the start and I completely forgot, but you mentioned your wonderful, wonderful poetry that you've been um, yeah. getting into. Right, so start. would you brace us with any poem of your of your choice? I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Okay, because I can't remember it off by heart yet. No, it's fine. I'll read Sabotage. Sabotage. Smiling, the pinnacle of authority, charming, casting spells from a script, mocking your instinct, dissolving your autonomy. Sabotage. Scan, exam, test and screen. The perpetual fear loop, irresistible longing for their approval. Week in, week out, fetishizing death, normalizing control. Sabotage. Safety is the weapon, compliance the goal. Coercion, subtle, familiar, adorning the walls. Disturbing your peace, being the solution. More questions than answers, sabotage. Are you feeling safe yet? Hop on the bed, dear, just relax. Just a little military-grade surveillance because we really need to know your baby is too big, too small, too old, too black. Step out of your queendom and into our lab. We're friendly here, now onto your back. Sabotage. It's because we care. We can't allow risk. Now kindly submit. It's only my fingers. It's only this graph. It's only your body. We need your patience for this violation. To decline is activism. To heal an act of treachery. They try to separate you from the life you created. And yet you love with every fibre of your being anyway. You are not a landmine. You created life within. Can you come home to your body? espouse the rituals that groom, radical responsibility, alchemy as you grow, language is your medicine, find power in the word, no. <laughs> Amazing, I love that. What was the weaponizing death line? Uh, let me find it, weaponizing death. And something um, about, oh, I loved. Uh, safety is the weapon, compliance, the goal. Mm. Oh no, hang on. That was the one that was weaponizing something. Normalize it. I think normalizing death is it? Fetishizing death. Fetishizing death, normalizing control. Yeah. Was the fetishizing death, normalizing control. Oh my god. Oh, I had like goosebumps when you were reading. Well, I'm gonna keep writing them now, so <laughs> yes, keep them coming. <laughs> all right thank you so much for talking with me today you're welcome all right take care bye-bye